Amen. Good morning. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus and what makes him so special. And we're going to do it from Luke chapter 19. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can turn your way to Luke chapter 19. If you have a digital copy of the Bible, we're totally cool with that. Pull out your device, tap your way to Luke chapter 19. We'd love to be able to read along with us. If you don't have a Bible, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. And we would love to gift you in a, a Bible in a, a readable English translation. So you can be checking this stuff out for yourself. So as you're turning there, let me just say, we are very glad you're here. Easter is one of those days where you're looking for more chairs. And yet, as a trend in the West, there does seem to be fewer and fewer people who are checking out churches as solutions to what's going on in their world. Now, I, I obviously care about that. I mean, I would love for that trend to turn around, but, but I want it to turn around the right way. I think at times we've had a lot of cultural pressure to be a good person, and that meant going to church. But that's not really the cultural pressure anymore. And when you take that pressure away, I think it gives the church the opportunity to examine ourselves and say, what is the message of Jesus that is actually compelling? And here's why. I think a lot of people think they know what Jesus taught. And yet what they think they know is really like what they think they remember from being like a kid and going to church a couple of times. I don't know your experience, clearly, but some people, when they think about the gospel, they think really about like glue sticks. You know, they think about like coming and doing crafts, and they think about like Noah's Ark story, and they think about, you know, uh, fun things maybe. You know, if you're a kid, maybe some of that's fun. Maybe they think about, in some churches, like stale smells, you know, maybe in some churches, like some judgmental people. Maybe they were the smelly, stale smell. I don't know what all went together in your experience, but... When you think about how church is or what church should be, I want to invite you to a full understanding of who, who Jesus is and, and what he taught. You know, if you only experience it as a kid, you're going to get some really good stuff. You know, when I think about being a kid in church, I think about the songs. One of the songs that we sang uh, was Jesus Loves Me. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll kind of like chant. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes. You know, it's okay if you don't know it. But, but that was one that we sang, and that song has kind of stuck with me. Now, I like that song, personally. <laughs> you don't have to like it. I like that song. And yet, you know, if I'm sitting across the lunch table from a coworker, somebody that I respect, they're an intelligent person, they're an impressive person, and the subject of Jesus comes up, and they do not think Jesus is an attractive personality, or, or they think that Christianity is something that's like inherently flawed. If Jesus loves me and that song is all I've got like rattling around in my head, it doesn't, I don't know, but maybe for some people it doesn't feel like enough to respond with. I think for a lot of people in that kind of a conversation, they feel like what Christianity feels like to people, which is maybe something a little stale, uh, something a little hokey, Certainly something that used to be more relevant than it is today, and maybe not all that compelling. And yet, when you think about Easter, 
You think about the culmination of Jesus' ministry that led to the conversion of some really impressive cultures. Like, whatever Jesus did and the message that he taught his people to teach, it was impactful, not stale, to Roman, Greek, and Jewish communities in the ancient times. It, It was something that was, in fact, so fresh, it brought a resurrection to many of these different kind of human cultures. I don't know what you know historically about the culture of Rome or the empire of Rome, but it wasn't silly. (laughs) Uh, Rome wasn't like superstitious. The Romans were not stupid. You know, like Rome was impressive. They feasted on the same meals that philosophers today feast on. Like they read their Plato and their Aristotle and their Socrates. You know, you think about the Greeks, you think about Rome or maybe like Athens, you think about uh, Jerusalem. These were places that were impressive, not places that were just like backwards. These are places that have handed down things that we still benefit from, like, I don't know, democracy and like monotheism. You know, like they, they came up with some stuff that has been really relevant for a long time. And it was those cultures that Christianity encountered and then impacted. There was something alive in Christianity that created something extremely compelling. It's not something just quaint. And and I think people think religion, they think Christianity, and they think like Middle Ages, maybe. And everything you know about the Middle Ages, you learn from Monty Python, you know, and I get that. I understand. It was funny. I liked the movie. But, But that's not like really what the Middle Ages were like. I hope you don't think that. You know, that that was a joke. Uh, And the Christianity that they represented isn't really what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught was impactful. It was impactful in a way that uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, she's a Cambridge PhD, and, and she says this about the sort of historical growth of Christianity. She says, of course, the extraordinary spread of Christianity, both numerically and geographically, so take a minute to kind of process both of those axes, doesn't prove that Jesus really rose again, of course, but how a man born into a subjugated ethnic group in an obscure Roman province who lived poor, died young, never wrote a book, raised an army, or sat on a throne has come to be the most impactful human in all human history does require some kind of an explanation. Uh, And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to attempt to take us together back to the message, what, what Jesus actually taught and did, in the hope that you and I, people that are religious and people that are maybe investigating or, or you know, maybe dismissive, can take a second to see what was so historically overwhelming, and I believe currently overwhelming. Uh, 10 verses. Here we go. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 to 10, where it says, Jesus entered Jericho. It's a town sort of near Jerusalem. So we're thinking Middle East, this is back in Jesus' times, 2,000 years ago. He enters this city that is somewhere near Jerusalem. And he's just passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he came seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For Zacchaeus, uh, for Jesus was about to pass that way. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, meaning the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And that phrase is describing the fact that Zacchaeus was Jewish, but it's also describing that Zacchaeus is following Abraham, the man of faith. He's responding in faith to Jesus. Verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, there's a lot happening in these verses, and I want to try to quickly take you through some of it so that we can get to the core of what Jesus is doing here. Where 2,000 years ago, Jesus is walking around. He is a Jewish itinerant teacher, and the Jewish culture is intrigued. You got people reacting to Jesus in different ways. But at this point in his ministry, he's got crowds, and the crowds are pressing in, and Jesus is in the middle of the crowds. And as he's walking through, the crowds see him as an interesting teacher, somebody who is saying things that are new and that fit. They're flush with everything that's gone on through the Old Testament. And they're seeing him as a healer, a miracle worker. This guy is doing something kind of crazy. And they're hoping, they're hoping that he's going to become a military leader to take this group, this subjugated ethnic group that was in that quote, Forgive these quotes. You know, sometimes they use kind of obscure language. And I'm about to as well, so forgive me. But that subjugated ethnic group, they were hoping that Jesus was going to become a military leader in order to take that group and overcome the Romans and have it not be the Roman Empire, but have it become the Jewish Empire, the Israelite Empire. And they're getting there, and they're getting close, and they're trying to see what this Jesus is going to do. Then we have the other character in the story, which is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, it says, was a tax collector, and he was, in fact, a cheap tax collector. Now, a tax collector in that time was somebody who was a, a person of a group but worked for the Romans. So he was a Jewish person, but he worked for the Romans, ratting people out on what they actually made so that they would give the full of their tax to the Roman Empire. Now, I don't know what you think about taxes, but that meant Zacchaeus was not a very popular person. He was seen not only as an IRS guy, but he was also seen as a traitorous IRS guy. <sighs> right? Now, if you work for the IRS, bless you. I'm sure you're doing something good. But that, that's generally not... It's like saying, I don't want to play basketball. I want to be a ref. Ah, you know, what? what is that personality? Whatever. So Zacchaeus, in this culture... He took on that job because it wasn't an upstanding job like it actually is. We'll make our jokes. It actually is. In that culture, it was a traitorous job. It meant you could get rich, but you got rich by selling out everybody. It was traitorous. He was a chief tax collector, and, uh, you know, he couldn't see Jesus. The crowds are pressing in. Jesus is at the center. Zacchaeus is on the outside. Why? Well, because he's immoral. The crowd is dense, and they hate him, and because he's a short guy. You know, I can see over crowds, I'm kind of a tall guy. You're a shorter guy, yeah, you got to climb trees sometimes. And that's what Zacchaeus did. He went to go climb this tree so that he could see Jesus. And what Jesus does is he looks up the tree and says, Zacchaeus, 
He knew Zacchaeus' name. Process that for just a second. Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. How? I'm not saying this is a miracle. I'm more pointing to what it means about how God feels about you. I don't know that Jesus and Zacchaeus had met. I mean, he was an itinerant like preacher. He didn't live in Jericho. He didn't have any income. So I'm sure he didn't run into Zacchaeus on like a professional way. <laughs> so when did he get to know this guy? Well, God knows you. Jesus knew Zacchaeus to the point that he spoke his name in the first name. Like he said, Zacchaeus. He saw him. He saw him as ridiculous, <laughs> but he, he saw him. And he says to Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay at your house today. He, he invites Zacchaeus, well, he invites himself over, but he, he's inviting Zacchaeus to allow him to eat with Zacchaeus. And their culture, what he's doing is showing an incredible sign of relationship. You know, for us, if you invite somebody over, you're showing them trust, you're kind of expecting that if they're going to come into your house and eat food with you, they're not going to like throw the food or steal the spoons or, you know, do something awful. You kind of trust them to some degree. But in ancient times, that volume was way turned up to eat with somebody. It was a way that you were putting yourself into relationship with that person. It really had some formal implications. For Jesus to say that he wanted to eat with Zacchaeus, wasn't just Jesus getting into relationship with a person. He was getting into relationship with a very specific person. We have this story because Jesus in doing that is teaching us the right way to be in relationship with God. And by contrast, the wrong way to be in relationship with God. He picked the one guy that the crowd was sure was most sinful he picked the one guy that all of us are sure was the most ridiculous. And that was the guy that he saw, knew by name, and feasted with, rubbed elbows with that day. Here's what I want you to understand. Historically, humanity has tried to interact with God or tried to get it. In the Bible, we say that ultimate satisfaction has come from being in relationship, in right relationship with God. And that being separated from God, we're always looking for what we were made for. Now, you may or may not accept that as a category, but I think all of us can accept that people are looking for something. You're trying to get it, whatever it is. You, you need something that will satisfy you. And maybe you, you define that in different ways, but in you, all of us together have that common pursuit. We're looking for something that will really satisfy. And the way people have historically done it is sort of two different ways. One way is the way that Zacchaeus models in this story. One way is what we might call the way of self-discovery. This is a person who looks at the traditional way that people have interacted with what is like godly or holy and instead either rejected it or failed it. Hey, maybe he flunked out. Maybe he never tried. We don't really know his past. What we do know is that he decided to live a life in opposition to what was considered moral. He lived a life that chose to get what good he could get, and he defined that for himself rather than accepting what Moses said was the good life. Zacchaeus did what we might call self-discovery, and it's something that I think culturally we do kind of a lot of. 
It's the idea that I am going to define what is happiness for myself, that I am going to do what I think will make me happy no matter what. We, we phrase it as happiness from within. I'm going to find happiness from within. I'm going to define happiness myself and pursue it myself. That's what Zacchaeus kind of represents, I think, in the story. Then you have this other way of trying to approach God, and that's kind of represented by the crowd of people. These are the people that consider themselves religious in the sense that they weren't Zacchaeus. So the crowd of people that are pursuing God through what we can... Con- I really don't love this language. It's a little clunky. So if you got better, give it to me. But, but pursuing God through what we might call moral conformity, through obedience, being the good boys. You know, you have the crowd, and so there's a lot of people. There's kind of a spectrum here. Throughout the New Testament, there's a long period of time where we talk about the Pharisees, which are kind of at the extreme end of this crowd. These are people who looked at God's law and said, I'm going to find satisfaction. I'm going to find identity. I'm going to find importance. I'm going to find control. I'm going to find what is good through obeying the law. So what God has set forward is the law. There's 400-something laws in the Old Testament under Moses. They were going to obey. And this Pharisee crowd that was taking it to the extreme, they didn't feel like those laws were enough. So they added lots of laws on top. And then they would try to obey all the extra laws that they added too. I think we see this in our culture. People who decide that instead of like kicking down tradition, they're going to submit themselves to tradition. They're going to try and climb that tradition. They're going to follow the leader and eventually maybe become the leader. They're going to be good and hopefully get good out of it. What I think is so controversial in Jesus' teaching, when you really see what Jesus says, is that he's rejecting both of these paths. Jesus is rejecting the path that says self-discovery, that I'm going to define what makes my life happy, and he's rejecting the person who says, I'm going to find how I'm going to be happy, define myself, by being really obedient, by being really moral, and kind of writing for yourself what that morality looks like. Now, in ancient times, it seems like you have Zacchaeus and the crowd, meaning that I think, at least in Jericho, the people there we're really putting a lot more into the moral conformity pathway than they were into the self-discovery pathway. You got one Zacchaeus and you got a whole crowd of people. I think we could probably say that today we sort of flipped that, you know, from a proportion standpoint. I think most of our culture thinks that they're going to find happiness by defining it for themselves and then going for it full speed and not letting anybody tell them what's, you know, different or wrong rather than the the group of people who say that they're going to kind of like follow the rules and and be really good and make sure they get their whole allowance at the end of the week and like clean their plate at dinner and like be the really moral people. I feel like that's maybe less and less and the self-discovery crowd is maybe more and more. But whatever the proportions are, that crowd that says, I'm going to define for myself what is good. There's a quote by this guy, Ralph Waldo Emerson. The only reason I read it is because I think it gives you kind of a taste of what the philosophy was that cooked up this drink we've been drinking. He says, divine as the the life of Jesus is. What an outrage to represent it as the only way to live, as tantamount to the universe. To seize one accidental good man that happened to exist somewhere at some time and say to the newborn soul, to any individual, this is your pattern. 
Behold thy pattern. Go into the harness. You must live under this yoke, under this slavery of that past individual. Assume his manners and speak his speech. This is the madness of Christendom. I turn my back on these usurpers. The soul always believes in itself. Do you hear that? Now, it's sort of fuddy-duddy language, and we don't really need to mess with Waldo too long, but I hope that you can see that culturally we've been kind of drinking that in for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure Jesus is a nice guy, but how dare you tell me that my life has to be what he said my life has to be. I'm going to define my life myself. Hmm. That is a way of seeking satisfaction. And I think not only is Jesus rejecting that, surprisingly, he's also kind of approving of the people that are there because at least they know some things. Like at least they know that that tradition wasn't working for them. At least they saw that some of the things that are in them didn't really fit in that moral conformity pattern. Then you look at the moral conformity people. These are the people that say that they really are going to do good. And because they do good, they're going to get respect. Because they obey what they consider morality, and let's flip it up and down, because culturally pursuing who you are and what you want to be has kind of become a new morality. And so you pursue that, and it's sort of this weird upside-down version. You find Pharisees or whoa, over here too, wow, you know. But in this moral conformity world, I'm going to do exactly what I'm commanded. And if I do everything to the letter, I'm going to have a great wife. I'm going to have stable kids. I might get a boat. You know, like I'm going to have a life that is winning because I do what's right. Bad things won't happen to me. Listen, that religious person... And that, that's what we mean by religion. If you have one of these cards, you know, I don't know how many cards are in your... T- usually it should just be three. There's a white one, a blue one, and then kind of like a... I'm not good at colors. Green, teal, tur- turquoise, a turquoise one. The, the white one, listen, if you are willing, just let us know who you are. I'd love to reach out to you. The blue one tells you about our community groups, but that turquoise one, it has on it gospel versus religion. What do we mean by that? What we mean is what Jesus taught instead of this pursuit of moral conformity, the idea that you're going to climb this ladder and get to the top, that you're going to make kind of yourself the captain of your own soul. I want you to understand that when Jesus looks at people in this track, he says they're in the most dangerous track you can be in. As Jesus describes this lifestyle, he describes it as a living hell. That will lead to literal hell. That's a stumbling block. That's hard. I, I hope that you give us time and come back over the next couple of weeks. We're going to explore what that means. We're going to look at it over time. Because it's hard. It's hard to say that your good, moral, older brother is actually somebody who is not following God. Well, they seem to. Yeah, I know they seem to. But when Jesus interacted with the crowd, he was pointing out to them that they actually need a lot of help here. That book that we're putting in everybody's little gift bags, it's a little orange book from Tim Keller. It's called Prodigal God. He's, he's exploring that concept. Our community groups are going to follow that book and explore that concept. We want to help you understand that it's not immorality and it's not this judgmental self-morality, that Jesus is saying no to both and he's pointing to something else. And you're saying to yourself, all right, we've got to get out of here, bud. All right, well, here's the third way. Here's what Jesus is saying we do need. What we do need as Christianity, this totally different thing, is something that was producing in its people something really specific and distinct. 
See, the early Christians that are following Jesus' teaching, they didn't have a lot of the religion that people had that were either Roman or Jewish. And yet what they did have was a morality that kind of outmoraled the moral people. When the Romans looked at the, the Christians, they saw a people that were incredibly brave, even when they faced death. That before the lion, these things that seemed soft as water were hard as iron. They saw people who were really generous with their money. They were caring for each other and the poor better than the Roman government was. Then they also saw people who were rejecting the Roman sexual ethics. This Roman sexual ethic that said, like, you have sex with anybody you want. If they are lower than you in class and if you're a guy and they're a girl, well, go for it. That saw marriage as a way to, like, perpetuate your name rather than satisfy yourself sexually. Like, like there was a morality that was taking place that was considered moral by the Romans that today we would kind of balk at, but we would balk at it because the Christian morality won. <laughs> like, it became what we all agreed was better. They became people who were very moral. They were loose with their wallet and tight with their body and brave. And they became something very different. They were different from the religions. A guy named Larry Hurtado, University of Edinburgh, He's a scholar who was, his main focus was kind of that first three centuries of Christianity. But he said, in Christianity, there were no images of their deity, no Christian altars or sacrifices, things that were, uh, I really struggle with this word, ubiquitously, ubiquit, ubiquitously essential in religious life throughout the Roman world. There was no Christian priesthood either and no temples or shrines. This is just a historian speaking about what was historically. Tim Keller, in that Prodigal God book, imagines a conversation between somebody who would have been a religious Roman, not religious as we think of it maybe, but somebody who was religious as a Roman, and this new group, this new Christian. Uh, the, the, imagine the neighbors of early Christians asking them about their faith. Where is your temple, they would ask, and the Christians would reply that they don't have a temple. But how could that be? Where do your priests labor? And the Christians would have replied that they don't have any priests. But, but, the neighbors would have spluttered. I don't know why they're spluttering. They're pretty tightly wound people. Two questions into a conversation, and they're freaking out. But, but, but the neighbors would have spluttered, where are the sacrifices made to please your gods? And the Christians would have responded, they don't make sacrifices anymore. That Jesus himself was the temple to end all temples, the priest to end all priests, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I got two sneezes. I didn't know if I was going to get a third. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Would have been great. So what did Jesus do when he came by? What did he do that was so distinct and fulfilled all these things in a totally different way? <laughs> what he did was he saw Zacchaeus and he called him by name. He saw him and he called him by name. Think about what it is, how, how healing it is for somebody who really knows you. Not just like that version of yourself that you kind of show the world, you know, you find like your best angle and you keep the rest of it hidden, but like actually knows, really knows you. When that person speaks your name in love and acceptance, when that person says, I know you and I love you, there is a healing that takes place. Ask any social worker or therapist or teacher or person who's experienced that kind of love. It flips things totally upside down. What Zacchaeus did in this story was to look ridiculous. Like that's the effort that he brought to the table. What he brought to the table was this little moment of humility to say, I want Jesus. That's as far as he got. 
And Jesus grabbed that one little smoldering wick and he took it the rest of the way into a flame. How did he do that? He came to meet Zacchaeus. He stood under the tree of Zacchaeus and called him down and then he embraced Zacchaeus. I mean, maybe literally, but certainly figuratively by going to his house and eating with Zacchaeus. He loved Zacchaeus. Think, think about this as well as you can in the time that we have. Zacchaeus became like a child. If Jesus loves me, the little song is all you know about Christianity, you're kind of doing pretty good because Jesus loves me is true. And that shows you the compelling aspect of Christianity. But it also has the trick. It has the stumbling block in there too. Because the people that are receiving Jesus in that song are children. He loves the children of the world, not the staid, impressive adults. He loves the ones that come to him in need. That's the stumbling block. They are weak, but he is strong. I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. But the ones who come to Jesus are the ones that know they're weak. That's why the people in the self-discovery track might have an advantage and might not. Does that self-discovery track show you that you're weak? If it does, then you're looking for a doctor. The moral conformity track might convince you that you're already strong. And you're strong based on every sort of metric that somebody might give you. So you're not looking for a doctor for your sickness. Well, that just leads to death. Jesus is saying he is there for the one, the one who in humility can at least look a little bit like a child. The BDN of Wille is a pastor, and he was talking about this passage. He said, we might expect to see children climbing trees and sitting on branches with their legs dangling over limbs. One of the great growing up pastimes is climbing trees. But we do not expect to see among the children in the tree a grown man in an expensive robe hugging the tree trunk and looking at the crowd. Yeah, we don't expect that. Nobody did. They thought he was ridiculous. But in doing that, Zacchaeus just at least initiated. He at least said, Jesus, please. And that's where Jesus met him. See, not long after this, Jesus goes from Jericho into Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you have the exact opposite. In Jericho, you've got Jesus in the center of the crowd, and you've got Zacchaeus up a tree. You go to Jerusalem, and you have Jesus the righteous, Jesus the holy, like he's godly enough that he doesn't just stand in the middle of the crowd. He could walk in the temple and sit in the Holy of Holies. It's where he belongs. But instead, he's rejected by the crowd and crucified, hung on a tree outside of the city. When Zacchaeus did it, it's ridiculous. When Jesus does it, he enacts the fullness of the Old Testament that says, cursed is the man that is hung on a tree. He was executed by the Romans in a Roman style, but in a way that fully captured what it meant to be executed outside the city as one totally rejected by God. And so he said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of being accepted, he is rejected. Why? So that Zacchaeus can be accepted and so that anybody who can follow Zacchaeus's path will be accepted. That's what Easter's preaching. It's not about A or B. It's about C. It's about being reunited with the Lord, not because of your good, not because you're going to define the Lord as kind of your own thing, but because the real holy God, who actually saw Zacchaeus' sin, not just himself, 
died for that sin to make a way for you to be brought back into relationship with the Lord. Listen, that's what we preach as the Christian gospel. That's what we as a church have to recapture if we're going to be able to present what is the real gospel to the world, not some stale imitation, not some moral conformity, ter- terrible thing, but the real gospel. We've got to recapture it. That's why we're going through this series. And if you are one of these people that is exploring, you're here, you're new, would you give us the grace? Like just for your own like intellectual capacity, your own like cultural literacy, would you give us the grace of a couple of weeks to just see what Jesus taught? Man, I hope you will. If you will, maybe you could write uh, your email on one of those white papers. If you do, I personally will reach out to you. If that's crazy, and I get it, uh, just talk to the person who invited you today. See what they can tell you about it. If that's crazy, I get it. You know, if they're a Hope Church person, they're probably not that great. But then, maybe, give us the grace of just coming for a couple of weeks. You know, today, maybe it goes a little long. Most of the time, I'm out. I'm 30 minutes tight. And we sing another song, and you're rolling. But it'll give you time to think and process what it was that flipped the world upside down and is here for you. One other thing kids might know that I need you to hear is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're going to picture that right now in baptism. See, about four years ago, we had a Congolese refugee start worshiping with us. Pastor Mambano and his wife, Janine, became part of our family here at Hope Church. And over the years, we understood that Mambano had been called to be a pastor when he was in Africa. About a year ago, God moved in his heart that it was time to begin a ministry to Africans here in Utah. And so they began a Kenyarwandan-speaking service after our 11 o'clock here on Sundays, meet at about 1 o'clock. They're working their way towards becoming a self-sustaining church, a self-sustaining body. And God has already blessed that effort with fruit, as you're going to see today through baptism. So I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, they're going to play a video that will show you a testimony of the woman that we're about to baptize. And I hope you see in her life how Zacchaeus can be her, can be you, and you can be with God forever. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace to understand your gospel, that we might believe and be yours forever. In your holy name we pray. Amen.